All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, the talky, and let's face it, I'm really talking to my friends, touchy-feely version of my book, Photo Work, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. I am Sasha Wolf, as usual, uh, recording from the Bearsville Theater in Woodstock, New York, um, and joined, as usual, by my friend and producer, Michael, new nickname, Michael Quarantine Two Times. <laughs> <laughs> This is, I'm, by the way, you can thank me later for giving you your mob name because <laughs> that's it. There it is. So if you have to go do a job with Johnny One Eye, like get rid of some <laughs> crime boss. Oh, I'll take a quarantine two times. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be Johnny One Eye. No. Um. <laughs> quarantine two times, Michael Chovendalton. Hello, Michael. Hello. Yep. Uh, I think it's just uh, the life we're going to have until uh, we're all vaccinated. Uh, if you have, and I'm sure many others are going through this, if you have children in school, they're probably going to be contact traced at some point, And then you all have to figure out what that means for the rest of the family. I think you should turn this into some sort of like social experiment whereby you just flat out say, okay, you know what? I'm not going to leave my house for 90 days, or maybe you should make it even longer. You could see if you could turn your house into a completely like sustainable, you know, like one of those <laughs> communities in some like yes. geodome out in the desert somewhere and <laughs> geodesic dome. And you could, um, yeah, just, you know, turn the like rec room into a root cellar. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Start our uh, hydroponic uh, yeah. farm. Just go all in. Accept your fate. You're never leaving the house again. No. Um, so a couple things. One, if people hear the sound of synthetic fabric <laughs> rubbing up against itself. <laughs> it sounds a little bit like Patagonia. Right. Ex <laughs> Wait, can you, can you differentiate the sound of Patagonia from North Face? Um, of course. Okay. North Face. Uh. No, don't, don't say it. Um, <laughs> no. Okay. So it's about 19 degrees outside. And as I've mentioned before, my uh, recording studio, as lovely as it is, and I do love it, is not heated. And it's, it's basically a sort of cinder block. So it's not insulated. Huh. Or um, Anyway, suffice it to say, I'm, I'm just guessing, but I think it's probably um, in like the mid-40s where... I'm sitting here, so I can't see my breath, but I think we're right, right about at that threshold. So I've got, I literally have my ski pants on. Um, that might mean your body temperature is dropping. Right. I'm going into hypothermia. I was actually thinking that, like, while we record the intro, I may be um, being cryogenically frozen. Um, <laughs> bonus, uh, fringe benefit of recording the intro I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave here today, and I'm going to be five minutes younger. Um. <laughs> <laughs> My aunt and uncle are going to be like, you look fantastic. That's right. <laughs> I thought you were recording the intro. You look like you went to a spa. Um, so 
we joke around, but of course, um, 2021 has not gotten off to a good start. Um, so just acknowledge the uh, the need to joke around, right? You know, joking around so we don't burst into tears, which we've I'm speaking for myself have done many times mm-hmm. over the last four or five days. But uh, last week was the storming of the Capitol by the uh, traitorous mob incited by Trump and his henchmen. And it was, you know, it just continues to be devastating. I mean, more and more footage is coming out, and it's it's just extremely hard to even look at. It's the brutality and the frenzy um, is 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 really just uh, really awful. I mean, uh, you know. Yeah, and the idea from those who are still supporting and promoting his agenda that that this is just uh, people who are frustrated and angry and don't feel represented, um, sh- you know, uh, expressing their First Amendment freedoms. Uh, you know, it, it's it's gone way beyond. Oh, that. yeah. I mean, look, I, you know, we all feel frustrated and angry and not represented at different times, if not all the time. I mean, that's part of living in a democracy. Right. So there that's no excuse for being on a murderous rampage and and being susceptible to let yourself, either letting yourself being whipped into a murderous frenzy or doing the whipping, whatever it is, there's no excuse for any of it. And I hope that everyone's brought up on charges. There should be one set of laws for everyone. And I'd like to see uh, anyone who had anything to do with this prosecuted and including, um, you know, the, yeah. the president, whether it's in a court of law, whether it's impeachment, whatever it is, but it's um, it's got yeah, got to be done. If, even if they didn't storm the Capitol, uh, to show up with Confederate flags and to set up a noose for public hanging, in itself, is an act of racist violence. I couldn't agree more. Um, so. Let there be justice. And, you know, we'll just continue to hope and for those of you who pray, hope and pray for uh, better days to come. Yeah. And on that note, uh, let's let's get into it. So how did you find this week's interviews with my uh, friend, great photographer, Christine Potter? Did you enjoy the conversation? Yeah, I thought this was such a warm conversation between two friends. Uh, And the points that Christine makes, uh, you and and Christine make in kind of mapping out her her career and and her life in photography, I thought was fantastic. Um, You know, Christine mentions moving to Nashville as a way and a means of her and her husband being able to stay creative because, you know, coming from New York, which she still loves, you know, it wasn't always easy to have the time and the finances and everything else to do the work that she wanted to do. Uh, And I thought, you know, what a great message, you know, to be be able and willing and, you know, to give up a place that you love. And and artists have this fear of leaving these big metropolitan areas where the representation is, where the the galleries are, where, you know, where all those things are. And I thought that was a a good message for artists who are trying to figure things out. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I just think it gives people so much more freedom to hear someone like Christine 
talk about leaving New York City and only upon leaving New York City does her career really take off. And she'll, you know, listen to the <laughs> episode and you'll hear the different reasons for that, um, different things that happened after she left. But it's not at all that she's, you know, not keeping the pedal to the metal, so to right, speak. Right. But um, there are things that just loosen up for her. And yeah, I think that's incredibly important. I was really glad she talked about that. Yeah, it wasn't a, a rejection of New York. She didn't leave it because she didn't like it or she couldn't handle it. It's just that she needed to uh, have a different kind of space to make the work she wanted to make. Yep. Yeah. And then you asked um, your question about audience. Uh, and Christine's response, I thought, was great because she mentions that she only thinks about audience when she's editing. And that's such a, right. a freeing way to make work if you, you know, yeah. if you can separate those two things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, in uh, any creative writing class, one of the first things they teach you is that the editor should not be in the room when you're writing. Hmm. So, you know, it's the same sort of thing. The editor doesn't necessarily need to be around when you're making work, but when you're editing it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's always important, whatever. I mean, I think any artist will tell you this. You need to be able to work from a sort of liminal place and look I mean some people are making work that is I don't know just you know very highly conceptual and has a certain didactic quality where you know maybe there doesn't need to be a lot of emotion in the making mm. of it and I, you know I don't want to disregard that type of work but for sure a lot of artists you know in order to sort of find that balance work try and find a way of working with a certain amount of, you know, creating the right environment so that their subconscious has room to uh, make itself known. Yes, you actually touch upon that idea about the subconscious and thinking about your work while making it uh, in a number of different ways in this episode that yeah. I think are really yeah, yeah. interesting. And I don't want to give too much well, you away. Know, that's, but, yeah. No, but that's a favorite topic of mine among... <laughs> A handful. So I was re really glad we talked about that. Yeah, I really love the episode. I, I love Christine. I, I mean, look, this happens a lot where I have more questions um, than I have time for. But Christine's going to be in a, I, th I think what's going to turn out to be an important show at ICP coming up mm. soon. And I think it, it might be um, worth circling back around with her after that. So I think I'll do that. If people are listening and they think, why didn't Sasha ask this, that, and the other thing? <laughs> As I'm sure people think all the time, and believe me, I think that also. Yes. <laughs> but I, I just don't get to everything. Christine is definitely someone I'd like to, to bring back for a part two. Well, would that be our first part two? Well, you know, I have a handful of people. I won't give it away right now, but there, there is a handful of people that we've we've had on that I, I, I really just had have too many um, outstanding questions that I didn't get to mm -hmm. that it just nags at me. So I think there'll be a few part twos. <laughs> but we have Zora J. Murph coming up next. Yes. And then a whole bunch of, of great uh, guests scheduled after that. Yes. But we will get to those part twos. Anyway, okay, now we're just rambling. <laughs> why don't we, uh, why don't you take it away? Um, and thank you so much for hanging with me this morning. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, go get a nice cup of hot cocoa. <laughs> I will. Thank you. And here's your conversation with Christine Potter. Christine Potter, welcome to the podcast. I'm 
really happy to, you know, to be talking with you today. I feel like the podcast is a little bit like how I get to catch up with my friends, you know, get them to do the podcast. And so thank you. Thank you. I'm super happy to be in, uh, to be here with you wherever we are. I know we're we're virtually together. We're virtually we're virtu- together. Yep, that's the world. We that's, live the in now. that's the safe <laughs> way. That's the safe way. So you're in Nashville. Yep, I am. And um, how how have well, I mean, so I, three thoughts all at once. One is how have you been coping with you know pandemic life? Two is of course our listeners probably don't know exactly you know how you wound up in Nashville, and then. Three, of course, I always want people to tell my audience how they sort of, what their photographic journey has been like. So tackle those three things as you will. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start at the beginning. Your last question is how I, oh, how I got here in general. I grew up in Georgia uh, in a small military town. And, you know, most army brats move around every two years, but I had this really uncommon stasis, I guess, where my father took a job and we we really were in this small town for all of my formative years. And uh, so I ended up going to the University of Georgia because I guess it's called the Hope. Yeah, it's called the Hope Scholarship was instituted when I was in high school. And that sort of said that if you had a B average in school, you could you could get tuition to a state school. I, and I had dreams of leaving the state. I mean, just as quickly as possible, but mm-hmm. free tuition was attra- was attractive. So I ended up at the University of Georgia. And, uh, you know, I majored in all kinds of things there, trying to figure it out and settled at art history and was really involved in the music scene and ran the radio station. And, you know, I had this very creative life, but I wasn't necessarily a creative person person. I just was like curating it, uh, either visual arts, working at the museum or or the radio station. Anyways, the, the art history program was in the art school. And so I was required to take a certain number of studio classes. And instantly I thought, well, photography is the most interesting. I've always been kind of interested in that. And I remember looking at the schedule of classes and you know, I didn't want one too early because I was usually in the in the rock clubs at night going to shows. And so <laughs> so I found that uh, class that was like mid- a girl after my own heart. Oh, choosing, yeah. Choosing what to take by what time the class is. Yeah, I was definitely I'm not a super that. morning person. So so I took the midday class that was available photo one and uh, showed up first day. I have no idea who this is, but my professor is. Mark Steinmetz. <laughs> oh my God, that's and so I just and you know amazing. in retrospect I think I've never asked him this question but you know I'm pretty sure he didn't teach an early morning class because he would always photograph in the morning and in the late afternoon and midday is when he did like work so it makes sense this is that fate. Our, yes this is fate um, we had two two completely separate reasons to end up in the same place at the same <laughs> time but it changed my life. I mean, really, really rapidly. I just, he introduced me to this whole new language. I just, I really went down the rabbit hole and, um, and that's what I wanted to do. And that's, that's kind of all she wrote in terms of how I, how I came to photography. I mean, I just didn't want to do anything else. After that, strangely, I think it was, he didn't teach that much. He touched, he taught like one class a semester or something. But a year or two later, you know, I was moving every year, like a lot of college students do. 
And I ended up moving onto this street and I realized I lived basically across the street from Mark Steinmetz now. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, you know, I just, I knew that there's so much to learn from this person. I just knew that instinctually. And so, you know, I definitely would try to tag along. If I saw him going out on a photo trip, I, I mean, I was shamelessly sometimes asking to to tag along or just, yeah, what can I learn? What can I learn from this person? So um, really grateful for, for all of that provided for me, uh, photographically and otherwise, I think. What can I say? After, after school, I, I still really had the compulsion to get out of Georgia. So by a series of wild and crazy in love circumstances, I moved to Paris, France, <laughs> and, you know, that's a story all in of itself, but I did have to get a job. And the only thing I couldn't speak a, a lick of French, but I could print, you know, and so there were fo this was in the, this was in 2000. And I, I someone helped me write a resume in French and I dropped it off at all the photo labs in Paris. And I got an email. Thank God it wasn't a phone call. I got an email inviting me in for um, an interview. And I was terrified because, again, I can't speak French, but I had this box of prints. And so I just went and I put that box of prints on the table and I pointed at it and I said, I can do this. I can do this. Do you need this? You know, and they did. And they hired me. And it turns out it was this really big lab that handled, you know, all of Magnum's work, uh, Pierre Gilles, William Klein. I mean, the big people. And, uh, and it was my first job, you know, it was my first post-college job. And, uh, you know, I got my dark room and I just printed all day long. And the, the fringe benefit to that, of course, was that I was shooting, I was shooting color film at the time, I could drop off film when I got to work. And by the end of the day, you know, the person who processes the film would have processed my film in a batch with others, you know, yeah, it's amazing. And so she would bring it up. I was making contact sheets at the very beginning. That was kind of, I was just making contact sheets for seven hours a day. But, um, you know, I would stay after work and, and, and work on my own pictures. And so I could really sustain at that time a, a, a true engagement with, you know, making work and um, developing it and printing it, which is such a challenge for a lot of people. I mean, it's different now. Students have access to digital. This was a really pre-digital yeah. time. So uh, that was just incredibly, you know, I tell my students all the time, get a, get a job with good fringe benefits, you know, get, get a job yeah. that puts you close to the things that you need access to. Um, and for me, that was, that was a lab. And God, I learned so much there because instead of just printing for myself, you know, I had to solve all kinds of photographic problems from fashion through, you know, journalism uh, to, you know, kind of fine art, you know, artists coming in. And yeah, you learn a lot when you have to print for other people. So yeah, that was great. I stayed there for about three years and I learned French. <laughs> Turns out your coworkers really don't like it when you can't speak the language. So I had to learn French very, very quickly. And um, anyways, you know, after a couple of years of being there, really feeling like I did the, the art world in Paris in the early 2000s felt so provincial to me. You know, if I went to a photo gallery, it was always like daguerreotypes or, you know, I don't know. Everything just felt yeah. really, you know, anchored in the past. And I was yeah. I was really hungry for 
some contemporary work and conversation about my own work. So I, you know, I wanted to go to grad school, but I didn't want to generically go to grad school. I was kind of happy living in Europe. I mean, I was traveling all the time. I was really... Oh, yeah. I mean, going to Morocco all the time. I mean, life felt like I was pretty ready to just, you know... A girl from Georgia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I only wanted to go to Yale. I mean, that's kind of all my heroes went there. And so I just thought if I'm going to leave this situation, which is pretty good, uh, I'll do it for that. And so so I left. This is a long winded way to say I left France, went to Yale. That was incredibly challenging. And and I was not one of those people who, you know, where grad school was like finishing school. I was uh, a mess. I didn't know what I was doing. I I left asking way more questions than I felt like I had resolved. Um, yeah. It was very, very challenging, but at the same time, formative and, and amazing. And uh, of course, I met the most incredible people and, you know, it was good. It was good in the end. But but when I left, I, I still had a lot to figure out. So yeah, moved to New York, stayed in New York for about 13 years, which is where you and I met. And, yep. um, you know, I worked for DeCorsha after graduate school. I worked for PL as his assistant for probably seven years. Wow. And that was incredibly uh, formative for me, too, just being on the inside of a career uh, like that and, you know, working with the galleries and just learning how uh, how you sustain any the of The art that. world ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I have a lot to say about that, too. But I mean, as you know, it's it's interesting that my two pillars ended up being kind of like Mark when I was first coming to photography and then out of grad school, it was PL. And, um, you know, I learned a lot, very different things from both of them, but helpful. And you wound up teaching at Purchase, my Bogavid Purchase. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I taught at SUNY Purchase for almost 10 years, actually, and just... Loved the students there. Loved a lot of my colleagues. One of the um, best places. One of the ugliest best places. Isn't it strange? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's totally bizarre. It's really I, hard to explain to people if they see it, why it's so great, because it's so yeah. not pretty. But I, You know, growing up near military bases, it felt familiar to me. There's something <laughs> incredibly regimented and, uh yeah. Oh, my God, that's hilarious. Yeah, it is a bit. Well, I'm sure you heard the rumors that it was built to be, to make it difficult for there to be uprisings. Yeah, yeah. There's all these tunnels, you know, that are under, under, that connect underground. And that's so that, you know, police can move swiftly to stop any, you know. And the big wide open areas. Right. Yeah, I know. Okay, we won't go down there. But it is an amazing school. Um, As I often joke around, I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before, the they literally had to ask me to leave because I'd been there for five years. They were like, (laughs) you have to go now. And I was like, I, I just absolutely knew that nothing in real life would ever be as as magical as walking across that big expanse at Purchase. And literally there being, you know, students, uh, classical students uh, practicing some opera and then someone with an easel painting. Yeah, and then dancers Some dancers dancing, (laughs) right. (laughs) Film students with film cameras. I mean, it was, it was was like, I used to joke, it was like, I don't know, 
young people get this reference, but it was like going to school at the movie Fame. Yeah. Except even better and more yeah. like debauch, really, honestly. Yeah. But, well, yeah, um, there's that too. And, and you know, having not been a student there, I was only privy to the other, you know, how that affected the students. Right. But I, I will say, you know, the students I taught there were hungrier than anywhere else I've ever taught. And I've I've come to realize just how important that is, especially in this field, uh, in any of the creative fields. If you're not, if you're not ambitious, um, if you're not hungry, it's it's just really really hard. If you're not passionate, you know. Yeah, I agree. And I think I I've never I still haven't met students quite as passionate as I did there. So oh, that's so wonderful. I yeah, yeah. I mean that's a is another conversation because I do think that's connected to it being a state school, but you know, in the sort of socioeconomics of that to some degree. Yeah. Anyway, well, we'll fast forward. I'll just fast forward yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Um, I after <laughs> after about sound 12, effects. Yeah, twelve or thirteen years in New York. My partner and I at the time, now husband, we just were kind of ready for something else. He's a professional musician. And so we were looking for cities where we could both be creative and maybe live life a little more affordably. And yeah, I, I had just started making work in the South again. I was taking trips down. And, you know, when we look at a map, you know, where can musicians make a living? LA, <laughs> New York, Nashville, you know, and his yeah. instrument is really one that's probably most specifically used in Nashville. So, uh, so we decided to do it. And it put us closer to to my family in Georgia and his family in Iowa. So we just, uh, we just jumped, we didn't have jobs. We knew some people down here um, who had moved from Brooklyn, uh, quite a few actually. So we weren't jumping totally into the void, but but it was a little bit like that. But we've been here three years now, and it's been really great. It's been a really good three years for both of us professionally, and you know, life just feels a little bit more manageable here in the day to day, which has been is particularly this year has been really great. You know, it's interesting you say that because I was thinking that it seems to me like you're, you know, you've been working really hard, plugging away for a while. And the past few years do seem like there's been an acceleration as far as recognition in the art world of, of what you're doing. Does it seem like that to you? Or Yeah. I mean, I would say about six months after we moved here, we looked at each other and we're like, okay, let's take the temperature. How are we really feeling? Because of course we missed things about New York. We love mm-hmm. New York. How are we really doing here? And both of us had the same just completely earnest thought, which was, I feel more creative. Like mm-hmm. I have more space in my mind to be creative. And that is, that is the less stress, you think? I think or? so. Yeah. yeah. I think it's just the less you know, going to the grocery store is easy. Everything is just easier. So all that planning you have to do, like I'm going to leave the house this morning, but I'm not really going to come back to my apartment till 11 p.m. So I need to carry all these things. You know, all that stuff you do in New York that just you become habituated to it all adds up. And when you don't have that, or at least for us, like suddenly we had all this space to be more creative and more, uh, I don't know, just more energy for that. So... Yeah, that's like a real thing that I didn't anticipate, and um, it really helped me. Yeah, I mean, I always tell young people that they should not 
you know, fall for the myth of the tortured artist, because I actually have found in my years and years and years of both making work and representing many, many, many artists um, and working with many artists over almost 20 years that when you're really stressed out and you don't know how you're going to pay the rent, et cetera, that just takes up space in your mind. It's really preoccupying. It and, really is. Even yeah. if it motivates, even if you think you're, you're like kind of the kind of person who drives on that energy, you do, but it depletes you. And if you don't have to spend all the energy doing those things, then suddenly you have all this excess, you know, mm-hmm. um, that you can use. And that that was true for us. And at, at the same time, God, every time I come back to New York, I'm, I'm in love and I just, I miss it and I miss the energy and all those things. But I, I feel good here right now. And I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have given up the 13 years I lived there either because I learned so much and I got to be exposed to so much. You know, it's really wonderful to hear you sort of identify the move and the having less stress, since I'm always preaching that to people. It's nice when someone's like not making it up. But I also, you know, was thinking that there is sort of a connection between the creation or finishing of the project manifest and then the publication of the book, which was now, what, like a year and a half or two years ago? Uh, yeah, it was 2018, so two 2018. years ago. Yeah. That does seem to be like, you know, there's a lot of really exciting things happening for you now. And I'm not really entirely sure how much I can say. Um, I'm going to let you just talk about what part of that you, you want to you talk about. I do know about a, a bunch of things that are super exciting. And, um, but maybe, well, maybe yep. you know more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> do tell. No. Uh, well, there's I, been awards. There's, there's a yeah. big show coming up. There, yeah. When we jumped and moved here, I just, and like I said, no job to land into, not sure what, how we're going to make money. Um, I just was like, yeah, I'll apply for a Guggenheim now. I mean, when's the better time to really say, I need this. I don't know mm-hmm. how else I'm going to produce work. And I always felt like that was an important part of that application was just really identifying the moment when you felt like it was going to be the most pivotal help, the most pivotal time for that kind of support. And I really, mm-hmm. I really felt like that was the time. And and when I was awarded the Guggenheim, that was that was really six months after we moved here. So that gave me a full year um, to, to really focus and work and not have to think about the adjunct jobs or, you know, whatever else. And so, you know, that's such a special, incredible time to be able to do that. And I was really able to focus and travel and make work and make mistakes and buy some equipment and, you know, settle some bills, all that stuff. And uh, and that that happened just as Manifest was publishing. And Manifest was published by TBW? Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. I really, really, really recommend it to people if Thank it's still you. available. Thank um, it's, you. It's so, so beautiful. Well, working with TBW was a dream. And, you know, I had tried to, I had tried to 
get a million publishers interested in that work and heard no a hundred times. Actually, mostly I heard nothing. So (laughs) it's so dispiriting, you know, you you send, you send these things out into the void, you hear nothing, nothing. And, and the first time I had sent it to Paul on the recommendation of a, a mutual friend of ours, he actually wrote me this really, really touching email about how much he loved the work, but it just wasn't a good time for TBW and, and best wishes. And I was like, that is the most heartfelt rejection. Like I knew yeah. he meant it. Yeah. And it was still a no, but my God, at least he said, at least he said no, you know, it wasn't yeah. just nothing. And yeah. so about a year later, I, and I was still living in New York at the time, I had reworked the book quite a lot. And the same mutual friend was like, I think you should send that back to Paul. I said, you know, I don't know. He, he was really, really polite, but said no thanks. And they're like, no, 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 no. I really think you should send it back to him. Uh, I think TBW is in a, a, you know, like in a better place to be able to publish it now. And so I did. And, and Paul wrote back immediately and was like, can you get on the phone? And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, of course. And then, I mean, within an hour, we were, we were deciding to publish it. And, and, um, and I'm just really glad it worked out that way. You know, I'm glad yeah. I had all those no's and I'm glad I published with them and, and do everything in due time, I guess. And, and, uh, you know, you have to be patient and you have to be willing to hear all the no's and believe in it anyway, I guess. And you, you had a gallery in New York while you were there and that yeah. relationship had its ups and downs and ultimately didn't work out, which happens with artists and gallerists for a million reasons. I always try and remind young yeah. artists that gallerists are just people too these are relationships and you know they're complicated it's it's, absolutely um, and they might and they might work for all the right reasons for a certain time and then things change and then they they might not be a good fit anymore and that's right and I kind of think that's what happened in my situation and so yeah I mean I was leaving New York I didn't have a gallery anymore I didn't have my job anymore was that very dispiriting when the that were you worried that you wouldn't you know, oh, I was absolutely yeah. worried that I was taking yeah. myself out of the art world. Yeah. Um, but I also kind of felt like the art world didn't care very much that I was around. So it didn't, <laughs> it, you know, I wasn't at that time, I didn't really feel like the only thing I was leaving behind was my idea. It wasn't a re it wasn't really a reality for me. And I could still make my work. And, and, and also the other thing about having been there for a while is that I, you know, I could still call people. I could still come back to right. the city and all those yep. relationships still existed. So I I felt like I'd been there long enough, put it that way. I want to ask you some specific questions about your work. But before we get to that, let's just tell folks about, you know, sort of alluding to a show at ICP that, that you're going to be in that's, that's coming up. It's unclear when it's going to open because of the pandemic. But it's pretty great. And can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, Paul Graham has curated me into a show alongside, I think, eight or nine other artists, all dealing with the American kind of documentary practice or re- a reimagining of the documentary practice inside of America. So, so not all of the artists are American, but they all have bodies of work here, like Vanessa Winship and Stanley Walakawanambwa um, are both in the show. And then Gregory Halpern and uh, Curran Hattelberg. And yeah, I feel incredibly humbled to be included alongside of 
all of those people um, whose work I admire a lot. Uh, the show's supposed to open at the end of January, so we're hoping that still happens. And there's a big book that uh, Mac is publishing. Gosh, it's like 200 pages, I think, but pretty significant sections for all of us. And then some essays by Paul and David Campany, who's the director of ICP now. Yep. So yeah, it's been interesting. I'm, I, you know, again, this is a, a big show that's for me a real stepping stone, I feel like, but it's all happening virtually, uh, at least the planning of it. And that's just our new normal. Um, but it's very exciting. And all the, you know, all the work's printed, and it's off to the framer. So as, as far as I know, it's it's going up. And the book, I think, is is going to be really great. So I mean, I think this is a career. And so I just want to, you know, do what I do often on the podcast, which is try and sort of do an audio version of taking a highlighter pen and underlining something. So I just want to underline, you said it felt like perhaps the art world when you were in New York didn't really care about you. And, you know, I mean, I understand that that's how it felt. I feel that the art world often doesn't care about me either. I mean, you know, <laughs> we, all, we all feel this way at, yeah. um, about the monster that is the art world. But ultimately, you're an artist and you did what you should be doing, which is you went about your business making work. And at a certain point, when you had enough work made that people had an understanding of who you are and what you're doing because you can see these patterns and things you're preoccupied with over the course of many bodies of work now, you put that together with just sheer serendipity, because that's what happens in life. Yep. You put that together in a stew, you have a career. And that's where you are now. And you know, so to me, it's just a really wonderful example of patience. And just keep your head down, do your work, make great work, and be dedicated to the work. And, you know, as I always say, try and be a good person so that you're as likable as possible because yeah, that always matters. helps. That matters. It really <laughs> and, does. Uh, and things will happen. I feel like you're like on a really awesome trajectory right now. So I'm very happy for you because, as oh, you know, I'm a you. huge fan of yours. So let me ask you a couple specific questions and about about your work. Sure. First of all, I don't know whether I was behind, although I'm on your website a lot, but it seems like you recently added some new pictures to Dark dark Waters. Is, I'm yeah. so bad at websiting. <laughs> no, you're terrible. I'm just, I'm, yeah, you are. I'm I mean, awful. <laughs> but you finally updated, so. Well, here's the thing. I When I got, so after the year I got the Guggenheim, I learned about this prize in Switzerland, the Image Vive Prize, which would support work for a year and then um, culminate in a big exhibition in Switzerland. And I thought, yeah, I need another year. So I applied and um, I got a phone call from Dianita Singh. Oh, I love Dianita. She's so wonderful. So wonderful. She called me lovely, at like 6.30 in the morning because they were in Switzerland. So woke yeah. me up. But I saw, you know, I saw on my phone that the number was coming from Switzerland and I screamed, which made my husband fall out of bed. So <laughs> whole thing. Anyways, um, because it's a significant amount of money and I yeah. knew that that would give me another year. So um why did I mention this? Oh, because they asked me to keep things off the website until the show. Uh, um, okay. And so I really didn't update anything. A good excuse. Yeah. But that that's just an excuse because had they not told me that, I probably still wouldn't have done it. I'm just really <laughs> terrible about keeping up with my website. So um, 
Okay. (laughs) So one thing I started thinking about is looking through Dark Waters and then going back and looking through Manifest and um, The Gray Line. I mean, these are your three main bodies of work, but then you have this also fantastic body of work called Nashville Nights, which is, we'll just put that to the side for a minute because it's a different type of project. Totally, yeah. It seems, I I do want to ask you, my mind is racing as it usually is when I'm talking to someone I love talking to. So, you know, I do want to ask sort of what type of a photographer you think of yourself as, but I also want to ask you this. (laughs) I'm I'm like going to get an F in interviewing. (laughs) I, I I feel like all of a sudden, I always thought of the gray line and manifest as sort of playing with sort of, you know, with with masculinity. And you've talked about that a lot. And you really see that in the work. And there's there's definitely a sort of fluidity to some of the setups in the portraits. But I hadn't really thought of dark waters that way in the reverse until... I looked at it again the other day and I saw some of the additional pictures. And now it seems to me like with the exception of maybe the baby that all the women in dark waters are very sort of very fierce. Yes. So is is it (laughs) true? (laughs) Is this an ongoing theme of sort of subverting gender norms? Is that just a conscious continuation of that theme? Yes, it's conscious now. And yeah, 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 yeah. My fear, if I can jump straight to that, as I generally do, do, uh, Do my my fear, of course, is that now that I'm aware of it, it's it might become too literal. That's what editing is for. Yeah. I mean, I do. It's like now I understand what's going on. It's taken me 15 years. Now I understand what's going on in my b- brain. But, you know, these portraits of women in dark water are a departure for me in, in many, many ways. One of them being they are really influenced by uh, songs and they're influenced specifically by murder ballads. And so, you know, if you know about murder ballads, they're you know part of the folk tradition, and many of them detail. Well, they all detail a murder, obviously, but most of them detail a woman getting killed at the hands of a man, for whatever inconvenience she represents. She got pregnant, or she's a mistress, or you know whatever. And a lot of these are kind of jaunty, really entertaining, upbeat songs. But if you if you parse through the lyrics of them, they're incredibly vivid and brutal songs where almost always the woman gets left in a river or dumped in the forest. That's where her body gets put. And so, you know, as I was learning about these songs and really studying them and the history of them, and, and I was just thinking about how all these, you know, if you turn on Netflix, like 80% of what we have available to us on Netflix starts with a dead girl. I mean, I just, it all of a sudden became so clear to me how much we are culturally entertained by this narrative. Yeah, and, yeah once um, you become aware of it, it's, it's yeah. yeah. So in a way, these these portraits were really a way for me to um, disallow them from being vulnerable in any way, uh, that they were, uh, you know, formidable and severe and angry and you know, fierce. By the way, I love the, I, I just, I love, I can't believe I was going to let this go and just go into something else because you said something that just makes me so incredibly happy, which is you sort of talked about the, the sort of subliminal process of 
you know, it's, it's really interesting because you are not a street photographer. I mean, you're not, mm -hmm. no. you know, you are setting up all your work. You're working with a large format camera. And yet you allow, obviously, based on what you just said, a certain amount of just intuition into your process. So that, that's really beautiful. I love hearing that personally, because that's, that's why your work retains a lot of emotion. Yeah. You, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty emotional person in general, and I'm very intuitive person. And yet, I obviously have to put myself in a place or in front of a person. So that's, you know, that's all conscious and designed. But then I just like open the gates and I, I engage with whatever's in front of me, um, not so much in a intellectual way as much as a uh, an emotional way. And then you figure out what you've got afterwards. Uh, yep, yep. That's really beautiful. I, I, I didn't realize the degree to which you were you were sort of working that way, but that makes perfect sense to me now um, because I'm a real proponent of of you know that balance when you make work because I'm a very emotional person also and. Yeah. And so I, I respond, you know, m most strongly to, to that type of work. Um, yeah. So I want to ask you this because I think you're, you're really like in your own lane and I want to hear how you define it. But how do you think of yourself? Like what type of a photographer do you think of yourself as? You know, what's so interesting is I think when I was younger and I I, I so closely wanted to you know, make work in the style of my, my mentors, my cho sort of chosen mentors and mm -hmm. how, how much I kept trying to do that. And I mean, to a certain degree, I think I did absorb some of the like kind of lyrical documentary style that I think Mark lives Definitely. in. Yep. And PL, I, I learned from him a, a lot about staging pictures and and uh, sort of psychological ambiguity and mm -hmm. and um, just how orchestrated a picture can be and still feel completely open and unknowable in a way. Yeah. And and then there's something else. I can't put my finger on it, but there's something else that's that's just uniquely me that I, you know, maybe it's some conglomeration of, of all those things, those things that I spent a lot of time thinking about and, and trying to engage with myself through mimic, not mimicry, but, you know, when you study, you know, you maybe you learn how to play a cover song, you know, cover song or mm -hmm. something. And then, you know, anyways. So, yeah, I, li I, I just live in this ambiguous space and it makes it really hard to answer the question what kind of photography do you do um good you know i don't i make pictures of people and places and i'm interested in history and uh, mythology and um, culture and gender <laughs> you know uh yeah I, d I don't have a good answer for that question i wish i wish that i did you know? i mean i can tell you that as an art dealer i'm perfectly comfortable saying you know, to a client or an art consultant that I might be working with, if they say, what type of work is this? Or how would you describe this person? I'm I'm perfectly comfortable not having one word. Yeah. I mean, because it also provokes conversation. So yeah. you don't have to, it doesn't have to be neat and tidy. It really I've never, doesn't. I've never been good at the packaging of myself, which is mm -hmm. which is one reason why I don't really keep up with the website because it 
feels part of that. And I, I yeah, I it's understand like, that. it's like a kind of thing. I, I don't want to put myself outside of myself to think about what I'm doing. I just want to be in it. And if, and if somebody right. else I wants to what you're, yeah. yeah. So I just, I never have, I never have good answers. I never have mm-hmm. that like elevator pitch that I know we're supposed to have. I'll have some long-winded, just obtuse <laughs> kind of uh, answer. I It's just, it's the space I live in, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's totally fine. And I told that makes total sense to me. It's like very self-protective. And, and it's interesting because it really feeds into my next question, which is, like, do you think about audience or, or who you photograph for? I photograph for myself without question. But when I'm editing, um, when I'm thinking about putting the work together in a, you know, on the wall or in a book or, you know, when I, when I put a box around the work, I, I definitely think about audience. I think about how people can engage with these various ideas that I that I have in the work, and um, I don't think so much about that when I'm shooting, but I do think about it when I'm when I'm, you know, if I'm going to put something out in the world, it's because there's an audience, and so of course I'm thinking, you know, what would someone think about this? Or if I put these three pictures next to each other, you know, what am I really saying? Or what <clears throat> questions am I asking? Yeah, I think about Do you that have a lot. like a brain trust, like a group of people that you oh, yeah. go to? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's so important. I never understand the person who thinks that they're like objective, they can be objective, and they're sort of going it alone. I, I really find that baffling. Yeah, I do. I, I do a bulk of it by myself. But then when once I have something, I'll, I'll definitely bring it to people that I trust. And that's. Whew, that's super important to me because then yeah. it then it's you know they'll they'll see things that I don't see um, and that's what I that's what you want. Well, so, also, yeah, go ahead. No, just I'm so deep in one way of thinking about it. Sometimes I won't I won't see either the opportunity for something else or see how what I'm doing you know could be improved in some way. I mean, I I think of it as just very simply. So when I'm working with my artists and they bring me the beginning of a new body of work or the middle of it, whatever it is. You know, usually where I'm starting with them is they'll tell me what is it they're trying to say, and then I'm there to tell them whether they're, they're effectively communicating that. Yeah, or what and you see, and, th- th- and then you see right. if it meets. Yeah, yeah. Right, Yeah. because that's the thing I think that it's almost impossible for photographers to know because you can't unknow what you know. Right. And so you need someone who doesn't know, who wasn't there when you made the picture and isn't in your brain when you constructed the concept to say, yes, that is your idea is reaching me or it's not. This is effective or it's not. Or maybe your idea isn't reaching me, but this idea is reaching me and this is how I feel about it. And you then say, well, that's great. I feel good about what you're experiencing. That seems to make sense to me. Or Yeah, 100%. And I, I still have some really, really close, I mean, family close friends from, from grad school uh, who I can reach out to. We talk all the time. And, uh, and then a few others I've, I've gained along the way. Anyone I know? Um, well, <laughs> you know, I... I, I <laughs> yeah, sure. 
I mean, I actually do talk to Stanley a lot. Oh, nice. Yeah. And uh, but from grad school, you know, I talked to John Lear and and yeah. Ted Ted Parton a lot. And um, you know, when I moved down here to Nashville, there's a there's a kind of group of women uh, that I meet with. I mean, not regularly right now, although we've been doing some meetings, some Zoom meetings, um, like Tamara Reynolds and Vesna Pavlovich and Stacey Kranitz and Rachel Boyo, who you've worked with, I think. Yep. Um, so, you know, we're not always all available at the same time, but, you know, there's a kind of a crew of us who... Yeah, when that's someone, fantastic. When oh. someone... Yeah, we just kind of... And Christine Rogers. Yeah, it's like when we... It's like our coven or something. <laughs> no, no, but this yeah, is so it's great. Good. It's so important to have... It's like a critique group. I mean, you know... It is. It's, it's so important. I mean, you know, people get so funny about this concept, and yet... You know, just read the history books. I mean, read about who, like, just, you know, 60 years ago, like, you know, de Kooning and Pollock, you know, just re- everyone was hanging out. Like, yeah. you know, it's like that's the way it always is. And it's so helpful. I mean, yeah. you push each other. There's a certain amount of competition. There's critique. There's it's all good. Yeah, we I had think. one. We had one the other night where because we're on Zoom right now, Mary Fry joined us and Judith Black joined us. Oh my god, how fantastic! And, and I was just like, this little coven's growing into something now. Re- you know, virtually, <laughs> really, really interesting. So it's it's. I want in. That's good. Yeah, we'll we'll bring you in. I We'd want love in, to have man. you. Oh yeah. my god, god, yeah. it's awesome. It's fun. It's fun. And and listen, I'll bring work to the table once a year or something. I mean, everyone. Yeah, people are sharing. Yeah, people. There's other people to talk about, but I, I've been trying to figure out how to make a book right now, and I feel just so cre- kind of creatively paralyzed by COVID <laughs> that I, you yeah. know, I just keep moving stuff around, and I I can't see it. I don't think you're alone in that in that way. I know some people who've been just incredibly prolific during this time, and I and I love that. I've definitely not really felt that energy. Well, let me tell you something about my experience with people who artists during COVID because like you, I'm also, you know, constantly talking to a million artists. And mm-hmm. um, so I, 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 I've been feeling like I have a personality disorder. Like my moods are so all over the place. Yeah. And I find that with a lot of artists I'm talking to and working with, it's very similar with making work. So there, ha- there are some very, very productive periods and then some very, very you know, some periods of, of paralysis. And so, totally. And I've yeah, had, you know, I've been other. busy. I, you know, this show in Switzerland was the biggest show I've ever done. And we started producing that in July. So it was deep in COVID times and also trying to produce something in Europe. I mean, it was incredibly hard to orchestrate. So it kept me busy. Um, yeah. I had mock-ups here in my studio and we were just, you know, Zooming every day with, you know, it. and now with the ICP show has also really engaged me in that way. So in a lot of ways, my studio's, you know, it's a complete mess and uh, that feels like things are happening. Um, but most of it has been, you know, exhibition related, which is a great thing. I'm not, I'm certainly not complaining at all. I wish I could have gone to Switzerland. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That felt like a real miss. We were all supposed to meet, you know, Uh, Leslie Martin was on the jury for that and, and uh, Emma Bouquet and uh, Dianita Singh and stuff. And we had all kind of said like, oh, we can't wait to meet in Switzerland and have champagne. And yeah, so that didn't happen. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of, you know, you and I both have a lot of friends who have had books come out, 
you know, in the past 10 months and mm -hmm. there have been no book launch parties. And, you know, it's really, you work so hard and, and those pats on the back from people you respect and admire are so important. They really are. There's, yeah. you know, sometimes they feel like people are ashamed to admit, you know, how much that means to them, but there's no shame there. It's a, it's a really beautiful feeling when someone you admire. Oh, it's everything. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's really That's, important. It's everything. Yeah, we've missed a lot this year. A lot. Yeah, we have, yeah. but we'll we'll get it back. Well, listen, I'm going to wrap us up. My attempt to always stay under an hour so that people don't um, turn me off. Um, <laughs> Keep them wanting more. <laughs> Christine Potter, I, I just love talking to you so much. And, you know, I, you're such a fantastic artist and person. And um, so thank you so much for, for spending time with, with me and sharing your thoughts with listeners. And Well, the, f the feeling is entirely mutual. Just love talking to you. I feel like I'm just sitting on the couch in your apartment yeah. with all yeah. those incredible pictures on the wall. And yeah, it's always good. It's always hopefully good. Thank you, we'll, thank you we'll, for having me. Oh, no, totally my pleasure. And hopefully we'll be back hanging out in person soon enough and um and until then um yep take care of yourself and thank stay, you stay safe you, you too you too okay. thanks sasha all right bye christine bye photo work with sasha wolf is produced by me michael chauvin dalton of real photo show the executive producer is sasha wolf and our theme music is by jay walter hawks you can hear photo work on all your favorite podcast platforms. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and be sure to subscribe on any one of those services or wherever you listen to podcasts.